Good morning. My name is Sam. If you have your Bibles, uh, open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and it's the uh, same section of verses we read last week. Uh, it's my hope that uh, as a Christian, as a member of Restoration Road Church, that we will live differently than the world around us. I won't define exactly what differently means, but my hope is that people will ask or be compelled to ask, why do you live like that? Why do you do that? And my hope is that you'll have an answer. And I think 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 to 20, give us a pretty good quick answer for that and allows you to have some conversation. And so we're spending um, just two weeks, the second of two weeks, on understanding who we are and what we do. And when people ask the why question, I think it's a good passage to go to. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 to 20 says this, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And He died for all that those who might those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is God's Word. Why do we live the way we do? Or why do we do what we do? And as I said last week, and these go together, if you missed last week, you really need to listen to it. Seeking to answer that kind of why question has to begin with the who question. Because it's only when we understand as believers who we are in Christ that we will even begin to understand what we're supposed to do for Christ. And that has to be in the right order. We have to start with who we are and not start with what we do, which is our tendency to define ourselves and, and measure ourselves by what we do. What we do does not determine who we are, but who we are definitely determines what we do. We are restored to restore. And that is going to be this phrase that we use constantly, but it's important to understand we start with the fact and the truth and the reality that in Christ we are restored. And we can't talk about restoring anything until we talk about the beginning. So first, as I said last week, we are restored by grace through faith, which is just trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We endeavor, we strive, we work to live who we've been restored to be in Christ. In many ways, it's almost as if you're working to believe what God says about who you are, as opposed to listening 
to what someone else might tell you. In Christ, I am restored to relationship with God. I am now, or was, I should say, a child of wrath, and now I am a son, an adopted son of God, never to be out of the family. Loved as a son. Loved as much as the Father loves Jesus. I am loved unconditionally, irrevocably. There's nothing I can do to change God's love for me. And there's nothing I can do to increase God's love for me. He loves me like I love my sons. I think having children helped me understand unconditional love more than marriage did, although marriage is certainly up there. But when you have your kids who do not listen to what you want them to do and often do the very opposite, your love for them doesn't change. You may not like them in the moment, but nothing they can do, nothing they can say can change my love for them. And that's a tainted version of God's love for me. In Christ, I'm restored to relationships with others. I was alone, but now I have a family. I have brothers and sisters in Christ. In Christ, I am restored to relationship with myself. I used to wander around following whatever was popular or whatever was convenient. But in Christ, I became a disciple who was following Jesus and listening to Jesus and walking behind and with Jesus. And in Christ, I'm restored to relationship even with the world. I was lost in the world. I worshiped the world. But now I'm a missionary to the world. A world that's steeped in sin. A world that needs rescue. A world from which I was rescued from, but God said, now it's time to go back in. We're restored. That's where it begins. We're restored, we're restored, we're restored. But the second part is what we're going to talk about today, that we've been restored in order to restore. That in addition to being a picture of restoration, a picture of of God's restoration, of His transforming power, whose purpose is to display the awesomeness of God. I have this verse on my arm to remind myself, this is Paul's... uh, kind of self-declaration. He basically says, I am the greatest of all sinners. He says, Jesus Christ came to save sinners of which I am the greatest. Great reminder. But he says, I was so great, look how big the grace of God is. We are saved, we are restored to make much of God, to show what God's, the depth of His love, the depth of His grace, the amazing width and depth of His forgiveness. But we're not just a picture of restoration, we're actually a tool for restoration, a tool for God's glory to bring it to others. And who we are in Him dictates what we're going to do for Him and why. Because, and I will say this many times today, the inspiration for for this kind of restoration, to, to just do any kind of restoration, to share that with any, is Jesus. And the goal of that restoration is to look like Jesus. And the power to accomplish any restoration comes through Jesus. It has very little to do with us. 
has everything to do with Jesus, what He has done for us, and what He does through us. And when we know who we are, we know what we're supposed to do as individuals and together. God restores His people. Didn't have to do it this way, but He chose to restore His people through whom He would bring restoration to the world. That's what that verse said. Right? He be, they became new creations. The old was gone, the new has come. And he says in verse 18, all this was from God, right? You did nothing to restore yourself. God did everything. You came to the table with, here, I got this sin, and this sin, and this sin, and all I got is sin here. And he did everything and made us alive. But then it says, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. More than that, it says that He entrusted us with a message. He made us ambassadors. In other words, if you're a Christian, your salvation's not for you. Your salvation's not for you. We have a Messiah, which is just an M word for Savior, but I like alliteration, so go with it. We have a Messiah... And that Messiah has sent us on mission. And that mission has a message. Okay? That's what... This is not like, I looked up the Greek and I discovered. Like, we can all read the Bible. And it says, you're a new creation. You've been given a ministry. It has a message. Go. We're restored to restore to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We are restored then that restoration comes from proclaiming and living as if we believe that God became, like our Creator became a man in Jesus Christ. That we who were rebellious and broken and, and undeserving of everything, who basically said, God, I want nothing to do with you. I think happiness is apart from your word. God said, uh-huh. And He came and He entered into human existence and He became a man and He lived a life that we were supposed to live perfectly. And He died the death that we deserved and were supposed to. And He says, just believe. Just believe that I love you that much. Just believe that you can't work yourself out of this problem. Believe I have done it all. And He rose from the dead to prove that He was who He said He was. And He did what He said He did. And He offers free, free salvation to anyone who would repent and believe. That's the Gospel. That's what restores. And we don't believe that. We really don't. We think it's a matter of us convincing someone to believe that. But the reality is, people are transformed by God in a moment. And all we ought to do is open our mouths. And sometimes that's not even necessary. But we are restored to restore. Now this theme of restoration is is deeply rooted in this, this city, in Snohomish. Our city is, uh, or town, city makes it sound much more robust, but it's, it's renowned for antiques, right? For, for repurposed odds and ends. For reclamation art, for re-engineering pallets into everything, right? Tables, furniture, cars, whatever, right? Here, here's the gospel. 
And it's pictured in this theme of restoration. That's why I love it. It goes from garbage to glory. Okay, now, when you go out, just go ahead. Walk down the street and look at these shops. They're very cute, but, I mean, they got a lot of stuff. You're like, well, that's like old and like now, but now it's like glorious and people put it on their shelves and like, yeah, garbage to glory. That's us. We who were garbage by choice have been made glorious by God. That's the restoration we're talking about. And there are those, if we continue the analogy, who restore and those who go into the world and find what others have abandoned, right? How many picker shows are there where they're going into like places of piles of garbage? They go into old like barn finds and they go into like junkyards and they're, you're watching the show and you're like, this is garbage. And they're going like, oh, do you know what this is? And they'll talk to the cameraman like, I don't think he knows what this is. We'll see what kind of deal we can get, right? And then they take it and they you know, buy it like $5. That's kind of steep. I'll take it for 4 Okay. And then they sell it for like 1000 Like, <laughs> yeah, right? That's what we're talking about. And like When we talk about restoration, we're talking about going out into the garbage and finding that which the world has abandoned. That which the world has said, useless. Because God looked at us and said, no, do you know how much that's worth? you know how much I'm willing to pay for that? My son, to make that piece of garbage that you see into what I believe is beautiful, what I originally made it to be. The truth is, we've been given a job, and it's that. And it's to bring restoration to the world. And inspired, empowered, and guided by Jesus, we are to work to equip more restorers and to send out more pickers to find those who are unrestored. Now, having talked about what it means to be restored, I want to talk about what it looks like to actually bring restoration. And there's a phrase that I'm going to say often, uh, and we're going, to, we're going to talk often about that. But before we do, I want to remind us that The mission of the church, like why we exist, isn't really a mystery if you read the Bible. Ephesians 4.11 is one of my favorite passages that I've been going to often. And it says that the apostles and pastors and prophets and evangelists and the shepherds, which would be pastors and teachers, they were given to the church to equip the saints for ministry. We just read what the ministry was. To equip the saints for ministry. And Most commonly, the ministry of reconciliation uh, is really the ministry of making disciples. Making disciples begins with conversion, and then they grow. It's the fulfillment of what Jesus told the disciples to do at the end of Matthew. Go and make disciples. Baptize them. Teach them. Discipleship is what we're supposed to do. We often talk about that. Like, make disciples, and people go, okay, and we just think of it as, like, evangelism, or I don't know what we think of it. We think of it as scary, and we maybe feel guilty because, like, I don't feel like I'm making disciples. I don't even know what that even means. Simply defined, I believe discipleship is, is a lifelong process. It doesn't just happen overnight. 
And it's a lifelong process of growing up in Christ. Growing up in Jesus. You start as a little kid in Jesus and you grow up. In fact, Paul stated in Colossians that his whole mission was to present everyone mature in Christ. That's what he wanted to do. And maturity in Christ begins when we first behold Jesus as Lord and Savior. And the more we behold Jesus' character, having accepted Him as Lord and Savior, the more we look at His character and the more we look at the cross and what He did, the more we actually start to become like Jesus. We should look Christ-like. And the more we become like Christ, catch this, the more we are restored to who God designed us to be. That's maturity. It's not becoming something that's told. It's becoming what God originally planned for us. It, it actually gives us this picture of humanness that God originally designed us to live out in Christ. But the key to, to living that and bringing that is to understand that Jesus has to be the motivation for that. And He has to be the actual model for that and the power to accomplish it. So let me talk about those three things briefly so you understand. Because we're going to talk about motivation and model and means often. We talk about bringing restoration. He's, it starts with his motivation. It, it continues through him and his example and then the power. So let's talk about Jesus as the motivation. Why we would we ever bring restoration to people? Why would we ever do anything for anybody? Why would we ever tell anyone about Jesus? Who Jesus is and what He has done is the motivation to bring restoration. Why we do what we do for Jesus is more important than what we actually do for Him. Catch that. Why we do anything for Him is more important than what you do. See, the wrong motivation can have disastrous effects. As a Christian you should ask yourself, why do you do anything or whatever you consider my Christian behavior or activity? Why do you do what you do as a Christian? What's the motivation behind it? Why do you obey? Why do you love one another? Why do you come to church? Why do you serve? Why do you give to the Lord? Why do you serve the poor? Why do you share the Gospel? Why should you do any of those things? It's a great question. I think all too often our efforts to do are motivated out of fear. Fear of losing or, or failing to obtain something important. And in life, it's the same way. We often are doing things because we're fearful of not um, becoming popular or losing reputation, gaining power or not succeeding, all those things. Getting wealth or losing wealth. And so we're often motivated by fear. And what is often true about relationship with people is true relationship with God. Much of what we do is, is often motivated out of fear. I don't want God to hate me. But when you begin with you're restored to a 
childlike relationship with him where you are in his family, adopted, unconditionally loved, and irrevocably in there, suddenly when you can't lose anything, your motivation changes. We're not motivated by when we're fearful who we are because we think who we are is determined by what we do and it's not. Who we are is determined by what Jesus did. And we're not restored because we restore others. We're not saved because we tell other people to be saved or to repent and believe. We are restored, therefore we restore. We are loved, and therefore we're going to love. Jesus desires us to obey His commands not out of fear, but out of love. And if we're motivated by fear, you don't understand the Gospel. Because the cross took away all fear that may have been. That's only possible for fear to be gone when you realize that you're accepted and therefore you obey, not the other way around. You don't obey to be accepted. You are accepted. And that inspires you to obey. Our service is motivated by, by Jesus' service to us. Our sacrifice is motivated by Jesus' sacrifice for us. Our giving is motivated because Jesus gave to us. Our forgiveness is motivated by Jesus forgiving us. I don't want to forgive that guy. He hurt me really bad. Now you know how Jesus felt. Our love is motivated by Jesus' gracious, radical love for us. That verse, verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. We're controlled. This is, that's an indicative statement. Christians are controlled by the love of Jesus. Why are they controlled by the love of Jesus? Because they have concluded this, the Gospel. That belief in the Gospel has changed them. So we don't go out and bring restoration to others because God's going to be love us more. He cannot love us more. We don't bring restoration to others because they have earned it or deserve it or even want it. We bring restoration to others because we who never earned it, never deserved it, never wanted it, were restored by Jesus and made new. Why do we do what we do? Jesus. That's the answer. Why, why would you ever serve that, that person that can give you nothing? Jesus. Why would you ever give money to people who, who haven't earned it? Man, they're just they're wasting their lives. They're, they could work harder. Jesus. Why would you ever forgive that person? They hurt you so bad. Jesus. I pretty much just have Jesus as the answer to all of those questions. Why do you live the way you do? Jesus. He is the motivation for our restoration. But He's also the model. Well, what does that mean? Well, once we understand like why we're doing this at all, we have to ask ourselves, like, what kind of restoration are we talking about? Because there's lots of ways to restore people. See, Jesus not only um, gives us, inspires us to bring restoration, He actually displays what the goal of it is. What I mean is, you look at our world, like there's models of, of wholeness and, 
and examples of maturity that the, the world offers up, and they're all over. Our culture offers different models of manhood, different models of womanhood, different uh, models of leadership and of marriage and of wealth and all these things. And they offer definitions of power and, and success and beauty. And all those things are tainted by sin. All of those examples. But Romans 8.29 told us that God in the very beginning planned something. That before anything was created, God planned for us to, quote, be conformed to the image of His Son. Translated into Snohomish language. To look like Jesus. It was His plan for us to look like Jesus. And so, the call to believe the call to say, repent and believe in Jesus Christ is not simply a call to just identify as a Christian. Yep, I'm a Christian. It is actually a call to follow Jesus. To live like Jesus. The truth is, Jesus has not just given us a life. He's actually given us a way to live. He is both the Son of God and the Son of Man. Meaning, even though He gives us, I believe, the picture of God in that everything there is to know about God can be seen in Jesus, He also gives us a picture of everything we as humans are meant to be. Humanness without sin. Leadership without sin. Relationships without sin. Anger without sin. Why would we ever open the Bible and read about Jesus? Because you see who we have been called to be. See, there's no real mystery about how we ought to live. And when we say that we are men and women of the way, is what we have described being disciples means. We are men and women of the way. We are simply declaring that Jesus has left us a way to follow and we're not going to follow the ways of the world. That Jesus has actually given us an example to follow which should be comforting as people try to figure out what is manhood, what is womanhood, how do you lead, how do you spend your wealth, how do you suffer, how do you forgive, how do you, how do you admonish? We talk about healing or maturing or restoring. We're talking about changing how we live and aligning it with how Jesus lived and calling others to the same. See, Jesus gives us a picture of what, and a perfect one, of what worship looks like. He shows us what it looks like for someone to find his purpose and his joy and his hope in God and in his word. And Jesus gives us a picture of what it actually looks like to love one another. We say it, we talk about it, he gives us a very clear picture. He gives us a picture of what it looks like to actually follow closely with God, our Father. He shows us the way of a husband. He shows us the way of a wife. He shows us the way of a friend. He even shows us the way of a citizen living in a government or under a government that hates him. He gives us an example of servant leadership. He gives us a picture of genuine submission. He gives us a, meth a method of communicating with his critics and people who disagree with him. But more than anything, I think he reveals to us how to forgive, how to admonish, how to warn, how to use money, how to suffer, how to sacrifice, how to love. And he calls us to follow him. 
Remember Matthew 11, 28, 29? It says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Be yoked up with Jesus. He says, I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. When you're yoked to someone else, the intent is for you to begin to learn how to walk and how to work with that experienced ox. And when you yoke up a young, rebellious ox with an old, wise, perfect ox, guess what the little one's doing? Bucking, right? And what's the old one doing? Sitting there. Just waiting. Because the truth is, the way of Christ is so different that when you first are yoked up to Him, it feels uncomfortable and weird. And it may even feel unnatural because we've spent so much time in the flesh that our natural is pretty messed up. But when you get yoked to Him, we all fight it first because we think we know a better way. Of all those things, we think we know a better way to lead, a better way to submit, a better way as a husband, a wife, whatever. We think we know better. We're fighting Him. He's like, just, just, just this is the easy way, man. What are you fighting for? My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Just chill. And by grace, eventually we believe what He says. And we begin to believe that living like Christ is actually the path of joy and the path of contentment and the path of healing when at first it didn't seem like that at all. That's the model we're talking about. And so when, we, when we're speaking to whether believer or non-believer about, for example, being a husband, we talk about Jesus. We talk about how Jesus loved His bride, the church, and how He sacrificed for His bride, and how He loved her undeservably when she was not loving toward Him. Jesus is the model for everything. You want to the model for our leadership and our eldership? Look at John 13, where Jesus washes the feet of the disciples, including one who would betray Him, one who would deny Him, and the rest would abandon Him. He said, love me as I've loved you. That's the model for leadership. And that's why they warn elders and leaders if they begin to lord it over you, yes, that's wrong and sinful, insofar it's out of alignment with how Jesus led. Jesus is the model for everything. And that's when we talk about bringing restoration, that's what we mean. And that, is, that applies to how we work, how we're friends, how we use our money. Like money, how does money have to do with it? You realize Jesus is the wealthiest of wealthy because he owns everything and yet he gave up everything that we might be saved why would we hold on to stuff where Christ gave it up for the glory of God for joy so we got this motivation. Okay, I know why, why we do what we do. It's because Jesus has done it all for us. And that inspires us. And if you don't feel inspired, you don't understand the cross. And you should spend time going back to the cross. And then when you finally go, okay, man, He's done it all. I was worthless. And He made me worthy. He made me worthy. I didn't become worthy. He, okay, when you see that, I believe you're floored by it. And then you go, okay, I'm going to start to live now. What do I do? I want to live for Jesus. I want to do these things. Okay, how about just looking at how He lived? 
But even when we do that, we stink at it. We fail. I don't know about you, but I endeavor to live like Jesus, and I don't always live like Jesus. I live like sinful Sam. I screw up. I screw up with all kinds of things. Parenting, marriage, pastoring. Yes, I screw up pastoring. Cat's out of the bag. I'm sinful. Right? But here's the beauty of it. Here's the thing that I think uh, I'm still learning and I think we'll all be learning forever. As he doesn't just inspire us and show us what to do, he actually gives us the power to do it. What I mean is that Jesus doesn't command us to do anything that he himself doesn't accomplish himself. I know it sounds like, what? I believe that anything he's uh, commanded us to do, he empowers us to do. That's why in Galatians 2.20 you can say, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. Like in other words, it's Jesus living in me, not me living anymore. He doesn't just show us a way, he makes a way. See, when someone just shows you a way, that's called religion. And it can be very, um, you can be very pharisaical and go, hey, I rock at this religion stuff. Look how good I am. I live like Jesus, and I am awesome. Pride swells up in you because you follow whatever laws you feel like you should follow. But you also, and maybe like me and others as well, can fail. And because you believe that it's up to you to live that way, you'll despair. Where Jesus is like, no, I'm not just going to show you a way. The gospel isn't just like, hey, here's some really good instructions for living. Here's some good advice you should live out. The gospel is news of what Jesus has done and empowered us to do. There's an interesting story in the Old Testament. Joshua, at the end of Joshua, after conquering the promised land and distributing the land to everybody, he commands their, the people's sincerity and faithfulness. After me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. You've heard that before, I'm sure. And he basically steps up and he says, you guys today need to make a commitment to serve the Lord and do what He's going to do. Do what He commands you to do. And the people respond like, yes, we will! And then Joshua says something really weird. He says, well, you're not able to serve the Lord. We were all excited about it. You guys should serve. We're going to serve. Yeah, you won't be able to do it. The truth is, I think, even when we're faithful uh, hearers of the Word, we're not faithful doers of the Word. Even when um, we desire it, we still mess up. I believe that Jesus, not us, possesses the power to bring restoration, and our failure to do that and live it out is directly related to our dependence on our flesh that we ought not do. See, as we try to display and proclaim the healing power of Jesus, I think we all quickly realize that we have no power to fix ourselves or anyone else. It doesn't stop us from trying. We know and understand God's commands. We even have desire to obey, but I think all too often we are 
self-dependent and trying to live it out. And it's not that we don't believe, it's that we're trying to bring restoration to people in a way that's different than we experienced it. You ask yourself, how did you become born again? You didn't choose one day, well, I think I'm going to be born again today. Right? The whole concept of born again is you're not in control of it at all. How did we become new creations? I am going to be a new creation today. That didn't happen. 2 Corinthians 5.18, which I read, says all this is from God. And just like Ephesians 2, which says we were dead and we were, we were made alive together in Christ, Jesus did it all. And this is why Paul wrote the early church to the Galatian church, and he said this, Oh, foolish Galatians. This is his first letter. Foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Who has fooled you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish that having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Basically says, The Spirit's the one that restored you and brought you to salvation. Do you really believe you're going to mature by doing it yourself apart from the Spirit? The power for restoration in others is the same power that accomplished our own restoration. It's the Spirit of Christ. He gives life through His Spirit in us and He brings life by His Spirit through us. And we're empowered to experience restoration and bring it to others through His power and the gifting that He provides. Paul says that he works hard. And you read these verses where he's like, I'm working harder than anybody for maturity, for discipleship. But then he also says it's by the energy and power of Christ in him. One of my favorite verses in 1 Corinthians 15.10, he says, but by the grace of God I am that I am. I am what I am by the grace of God. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Grace has its effect. When God promises through Ezekiel, the prophet, that He is going to give people a new heart. He's going to take their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. He also says, I'm going to give them My Spirit so as to cause them to walk in My ways. God does it all. And yet we don't depend on Him enough. Personally, I struggle walking in the Spirit. That concept of walking in the Spirit. And I've, I've meditated on this, and we're going to have a, a, a short series on the Holy Spirit uh, probably at the beginning of the year. And it's amazing how many times that phrase is used, walking in the Spirit. And what I've discovered is that many of us stand by the Spirit, basically stand still as the Spirit does stuff, and we think that's okay. My tendency was to run ahead of Him. And if you're not walking in the Spirit, um, you are not depending upon the Spirit. And I ran ahead of him because I was really confident in my own flesh. I thought, I can do this. And that works really well until you fall flat on your face. 
Walking the Spirit, for me, is a struggle because I like to go fast. I like things to go quickly. I am impatient. And when you're walking with the Spirit, you actually have to walk slower. And you actually have to see where God is leading. And you have to depend on Him to do something as opposed to depending upon yourself to accomplish it all. And there's so many times when uh, that's true for my own life where I'm trying to live out this restoration, just be a husband, be a dad, be a pastor, whatever, and I'm simply making my to-do list and and trying to white-knuckle it to betterness. And the same is when I'm trying to bring restoration to others, almost trying to force them to believe and not trust that the Spirit actually is doing the work. Forgetting how I myself was saved, forgetting that I have actually no power whatsoever to change a heart, to fix a heart, but God does. I don't know how many times I can tell you where I sit down in counseling situations and I have to remind myself, I can't fix this person. But preach to myself that God can. I don't go into situations and conversations with a script. Here's where we're going to go. I used to. And it was disastrous. I know what this guy's problem is. And here are the verses. I'm going to wait for him to take a breath and then unleash. Okay? Not anymore. I just listen. And I wait. And the Holy Spirit directs. And I kid you not, and this will sound like really weird and freaky, but there will be times that I'll go home and, and Kayla will know I had a meeting or something. She's like, well, how'd it go? And I'm like, I don't even remember. I don't remember, any, I don't remember everything I said. But it was awesome. And I saw God work but I can't tell you what the words were. And it's not like, it's like, like, I'm like, it's not weird like that. But there is this place where we walk in the Spirit and we trust that God's going to work. And, and as a church, like individuals, as a church, there's people who get frustrated that we don't do like, hey, you don't do all these events and all these things. Like, hey, let's just wait for a second. What do we actually believe is going to bring transformation to individuals and families into this community? Do we really believe that's dependent upon us? Because we can be a work a church, and I'm not saying we shouldn't do more or we should do less. All I'm saying is that that is not where our hope is. Our hope is not in the tangible things that are out there. Our hope is in people who have been transformed by the Spirit or are out there proclaiming and seeing the Spirit do His work and trusting that the Spirit is changing, not what we do. Focusing on who we are and then seeing what comes from that. We bring restoration by walking in the Spirit and depending on Him. All right, to close it out, and really, see, I'm closing my Bible. I really mean that. We're restored to restore. We are restored to restore. We are restored to restore. In other words, we don't believe that our mission is to get together, to gather, to worship, to get fed and fat, to do nothing. We believe that who we are is going to lead and dictate and empower what we do. And we know that what we do is going to be inspired by Jesus and modeled by Him and empowered by Him. But the question still remains, like, I understand the motivation, but still, like, why would we, why would we do that at all? If we bring, like, get that, if we're going to bring restoration, I understand why we should do it, but why would we ever make an effort? Simply stated, if you believe the Gospel, you will love people. And if your theology or who you know God to be 
fails to produce in you a love for people. And I just put that as people. You don't believe the gospel. Or you have a really messed up theology. You may acknowledge Jesus. You may talk about Him a lot. But you don't trust Him as Lord and as Savior. You don't love Him or know His love. Those who know His love. Those who know His love. Those who have experienced His love. Want others to experience the same. I'll close with this last verse out of John 15. Jesus speaking to His disciples says, If you abide in Me, and My words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this My Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be My disciples. As the Father has loved Me, so I have loved you. Abide in My love. If you keep My commandments, you will abide in My love, just as I have kept My Father's commandments and abide in His loves. Now check out verse 11. Remember this verse. These things I have spoken to you. Everything He just said. Obey. Abide in My love. These things I have spoken to you that My joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. We all have to come to a place where we believe that salvation, life, from Jesus and living like Jesus is the most joyful experience any human being can have in this world. We want for those we love, those we know, because we know it, for them to experience the joy that God has for them. And if you do not want someone to experience that kind of restoration, say nothing. But don't you dare say you believe in Jesus. Because He says right here, I'm not giving these commands because I'm trying to be mean. I'm saying abide in My love so your joy will be full. As husbands and wives, as moms and dads, as men and women, as all these things, if we live like Jesus and through Jesus, we believe that is where joy is. We deny the lie that Satan said in the very beginning that happiness exists apart from God's Word. We believe that true joy and happiness exists in God's Word with Christ. We take communion every Sunday. This is for those who believe and confess, and you do so publicly when you come up, that I am restored. And some of you need to experience that. Some of you need to know God's love. Need to experience God's forgiveness. Need to know that the guilt and the shame and the meanness of life can be gone as you are restored through faith in Jesus Christ. But when you come up here, you're not just declaring, I am restored and I know it. Again, I'm going to put a sign on there. You're restored to restore. That you have something to do. Some of us need to share the love that we have come to experience with others. And I would ask you before you come up that at the very least you pray for those faces and those people that are in your life right now 
that we're not in. And we will all glory when that individual, whoever they are, comes to understand what God has done for them in Jesus Christ. And we will rejoice. But for today, we'll rejoice of what He's done in you. And tomorrow, rejoice what He does in others. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You for Your greatness. We thank You for Your generosity and Your goodness. Lord, we recognize that You have done everything we could not. That You rescued us from our sin. You rescued us from death. You rescued us from the enemy that lied to us. That You have opened our eyes and caused us to see that You have made us alive when we were dead. That You have redeemed us from being children of wrath and made You Your children unconditionally loved. Father, let us rest in that restoration. To know who we are. And that is not dependent upon what we do or what we have done, but what we believe You have done through Jesus Christ. But let that grace have its effect, Lord. Let that grace move us to be a people who, who bring restoration to the world through just how we live and what we proclaim. Let the answer to why we do what we do be Jesus. And let it be a compelling one as they see our lives transformed by the grace that You have given us. It is in the name of Jesus that we are inspired. It is in the name and work of Jesus that we are guided, and it is in the name and work of Jesus that we are empowered. And it is in Jesus that we hope returns quickly. In His name we pray. Amen.